Imagine a world where aging, disease, and physical limitations become concepts of the past. Sounds like science fiction, right? But what if it's not? Welcome to the realm of transhumanism. What the fuck are you talking about? I can carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. 160 if I use a double. What will they think of me? friends and enemies it's episode 313 of this machine kills i'm jathan joined by ed and producer jeremy as always and we are very excited to be joined today by tamara niece who is tamara is the director of the aim lab and the algorithmic impacts methods lab at data and society institute um where She's doing a lot of really great work there, you know, thinking about how do we measure the impacts of, uh, of kind of algorithmic systems, the justice dimensions of these systems, how do we make them better um, in, in ways that are really justice oriented. But uh, we will, I'm sure, get to talking to some of that stuff later in the episode. But the, the real actual excuse for having Tamara on right now is that she's just published a really fascinating book called The Death Glitch, How Techno-Solutionism Fails Us in This Life and Beyond. So we're actually going to redirect our conversation um, and get into the internet of death, right? Because it, 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 the internet is not just a place where we, we live our whole life and post our whole life, um, but it is also a place where uh, uh, many of us um, have died and will die uh, on the internet in some way, right? Like we will live, um, our, our lives will persist after um, our death because of their, their digital echoes, their digital remnants um, in the internet. Uh, whether that's things that we've posted um, or things that are created about us um, or, or uh, using or, or with us using data um, from us when we were alive, right? And so there, there's, it's, it's a really, um, it's an angle of the internet that I think a lot of people don't really think that much about and for various reasons that we'll get into um but it is really fascinating it is as 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 tamara lays out in her book uh very much kind of crucial to the the internet itself is the fact that there is there are a lot of uh, there is a lot of death that happens there a lot of death that is um stored there a lot of death that uh, you know life that remains there after people are gone and what happens there and and you know this can be um this can manifest in like ex extraordinarily just mundane and everyday kinds of ways um which are you know a lot more interesting um, than we than, than we might think but it also does manifest um perhaps more uh tellingly in like really spectacle spectacular ways but in the sense of very filled with spectacle and of course the um before we were recording 
the uh, Tamara brought up the fact that like the the one the the thing that's in the news right now that really perfectly encapsulates this is that hey, there's a new George Carlin special out, right? I mean, so so you've got this co complete recreation of George Carlin to create a new comedy special, which there's a real perversion there of like choosing George Carlin to be the person to, um, as an avatar for this, someone who would absolutely hate him, uh, hate it if this were to happen, uh, and would do everything in his power to prevent anything like this happening to him after his death. Um, and yet here we are, but, but all of this kind of preamble aside, Tamara, thank you so much for coming on TMK. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk about, of course, the, the sort of George Carlin deepfake uh, monstrosity <laughs> and any number of other horrible things that capitalism has created. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's the thing about capitalism is that it won't let us die. You know, it will kill us and then keep us alive after our death. Uh, that's mm -hmm. the that's the real monstrosity of this system. Absolutely, and I feel like the point that you made, especially around like the the spectacular versus the mundane, and something that um, I've been kind of trying to bring up as much as possible when I'm talking about sort of, you know, TikTok having a deep fake uh, dead kid problem or any of the other sort of really horrific things that um, tend to emerge with AI in particular, um, is that, you know, there are other ways that this happens that, you know, can be pretty lo-fi. So thinking about the professor at, um, you know, uh, Concordia University in Canada, who was teaching a class after he died without the knowledge of his family, without the knowledge of the students who were learning from him, um, or the TAs who were actually doing the grading for that course, because the university just had a bunch of recorded lectures that they can, you know, continued to play for students and then just had TAs you know, assigned to the course to do all of the, the grading labor. Um, and uh, it wasn't until one student sort of Googled the professor's name uh, because he thought the lectures were fascinating and wanted to get in contact with him and realized like when an obituary came up that the faculty member was actually dead. Um, and so just thinking about, especially during sort of the, the switch to remote learning during the pandemic, and all of a sudden you have everybody uh, uploading all of their materials to Canvas or Blackboard and all of the little fine print that says, you know, all your stuff that you create for the university belongs to them in perpetuity. And just thinking about the fact that, yeah, I mean, even better than sort of the switch to adjunct labor is the switch to, you know, not actually maybe eventually having to pay anyone because um, we could just have generative AI do all the grading. I mean, I, the whole time you were explaining that, my mouth was agape because this is the first. I, this this story like completely flew under my radar. I I did not hear about this, and it's horrifying. Also, because we're both academics, and and like, and, and my university um, has this this school year has now mandated that like um, you know if you teach a lecture. Uh, then it has, then it needs to be in these like 15 minute recorded chunks. Um, so like if you do in-person teaching, it has to be like a, what they call a workshop, um, or, or, uh, a, a seminar, which includes like, like minimal amounts of lecture and more like 
activities and stuff like that. But if you just do like a lecture, well, now all lectures are conveyed via these like 15 minute recorded chunks of, of video. Um, and I mean, one, like the, the, the labor implications of that and like the, the educational implications of that for students are horrific. But then you throw in this, this added element of, oh, yeah, of course the university is going to own all of that IP and then mm-hmm. in perpetuity and use it however they want. And uh, all I can think about is, I mean, this is literally uh, what Marx called dead labor, right? Which is that capital is dead labor. It's the, uh, and, and, and here we go, like, like literally it's the, <laughs> uh, I'm being taught by dead labor. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of like just the fact that any schlub, like any of us, you know, um, in our little academic jobs could be used in that way, um, really gets beyond the whole kind of celebrity focus that a lot of the kind of deep fake AI conversations are about, because, you know, a lot of it has to do with the permission of the estate and clearly the, the commercialization monetization angle, like, you can make a lot more money from like a famous dead person and (laughs) their likeness and putting them on tour than you can from, you know, a schlub like me. But um, as a university, yes, you can figure out how to at least, you know, uh, extract as much labor from even the dead as, as you possibly can. So how do, how do universities kind of respond to when their current methods of dealing with dead labor are called out criticized maybe when alternatives are proposed i mean are they insistent that well you know this is the contract you know this is the deal do they offer some alternative logic for thinking about it or do they just ignore it and keep steamrolling through so i mean i i think the the argument is usually about things like um and actually this might be the case too with your like 15 minute recorded chunks of lecture is about accessibility too. So um, particularly if you're going to have students now with the expectation that you're kind of, even if you're teaching in person for students who might be ill or at home for whatever reason, you kind of have to also have the hybrid option. And so I think um, a lot of the arguments are maybe um, around this idea of, you know, kind of, and of course, like if you position the the student as a consumer, as a customer, then it's like, you know, um, we're providing a service to the students and you as faculty are kind of um, meant to make your, your you know, various uh, parts of your kind of pedagogy as open to students as you can. Mm-hmm. Um and so that is usually the the argument that I hear. Um, but, you know, I think there's also the sense of, yeah, wanting to be able to archive it. So, you know, it's like whenever you give a, a Zoom talk, people are always like, will it be recorded? Mm-hmm. And who knows if people actually watch that recording? Probably they usually don't. But yeah. uh, I think there's still an expectation that you want to, you know, record it for posterity and, you know, that it should be archived in some way as part of mm-hmm. like, you know, kind of maintaining knowledge. And so um, I think they would have arguments that sound good on paper, but then it's just the question mm-hmm. of you know, what, what they then do with, you know, uh, the sort of uh, the little piece of paper that they have where you check the box, you know, 
um, what they what they decide to do with that in the long term, I guess, is the question. You had mentioned earlier about continuation of like, you know, like artists in particular is like intellectual property, like in perpetuity. It's like, a, a you know, a lot of record contracts were written in such a way where a lot of artists work, a lot of artists became more valuable to the record label after they died. So they didn't have to pay them to tour. They didn't have to pay, I mean, essentially like advances. I mean, that's really the reason why you have like artists like Bob Dylan who still tours because he still owes money on all those advances he got for years and years and years because, you know, there's really no money in being a musician. Um, I mean, the the whole thing with like George Carlin, the whole, uh, I think it was like a dudesy podcast. It was a, a couple of comedians like fed a bunch of information and spit it out. And I think his, his daughter was pretty quick to like, you know, come out and talk about it. But in the same way, that kind of reminds me of like the Henrietta Lacks where her family sued, like, you know, where's that, where's that line? Where's, how is that gray area become more light or dark in that situation? If you put that in there as a discussion. Yeah, I think the Henrietta Lacks uh, conversation is a really important one. And actually, that reminds me, so a colleague of mine, Tanya Sutherland, uh, also has a book that just came out, Resurrecting the Black Body. Um, and she talks about, in one of the chapters, she talks specifically about Henrietta Lacks' family. Um, and the fact that they still, I believe, uh, have not actually received any money. Um, even after all of that. For, for listeners, could you maybe help, like, just briefly describe what is the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks? Uh, so, yes. So, basically, her her cells were taken um, when she had uh, cervical cancer and have basically formed the basis for all these forms of treatment that pharmaceutical companies have, you know, been able to profit from. Um, but the cells were taken without her consent or knowledge or the consent or knowledge of her family. Um, and they received no uh, payment or any sort of, uh, you know, even acknowledgement for, for many, many years. Yeah, I'll just add to that as well. I mean, I think there's it's a really great connection, Jeremy, like thinking about the kind of this immortalized human cell line of Henrietta Lacks, right? You think about because it, it is it's 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 become this extremely valuable source of medical data, right? Because it is like like her cells, the HeLa cells, as they're now known, are able to reproduce indefinitely under specific conditions. And so they've become this uh, this this invaluable but really enormously valuable um, source of, of data for, for medical research and testing um, for, you know, Henrietta Lacks died in, in uh, 1951. Um, and, and, you know, so now we're, we're like, you know, 70 years on from her death that her cells, um, the HeLa cells are still used in medical research and medical testing. But also importantly, and this is what you were um, talking to with this new book, uh, Tamara, as well as Henrietta Lacks was a, an African-American woman. And this was very much a kind of, and, and these her cells were taken and reproduced in this way without anyone's knowledge or without her family's knowledge for a very, very long time. Just a kind of classic uh, bit of, of, of 
uh, enormously unethical medical research practices from the 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 like the forties fifties um, that era, which just persists and it just kind of gets grandfathered because it's like, well, now we have this whole like medical research system that's kind of built around like using these cells and so if we if if we stopped or if we if we did something different then it could what about the cost benefits of you know of of the last you know 70 years of the medical establishment that has been created um that depends on this kind of thing and so i i think it it gets to a point you make um tomorrow as well in in uh, in your work around like you know the the what's new is old, what's old is new kind of thing where it's like the, the idea of like digital death or death on the internet or these death glitches or the life, you know, your life persisting beyond you, uh, in, in data form, um, are, are, it's not a new kind of problem or a new category of, of, of issues or, or, or whatever. Um, it might be arising in like new ways, but it's always linked to like, um, these, these kind of, you know, very pre-internet, pre-digital, um, forms of the same kind of thing happening to people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think, I mean, the fact that Johns Hopkins is also, you know, part of the story about, um, you know, Henrietta Lacks in, in particular. And so thinking again about sort of the role of research and the university um, in these systems of extraction. And so it's a, a little bit of a different story than, you know, and Tanya actually writes about um, Tupac, right, being resurrected as a sort of hologram at Coachella in 2012, um, but kind of drawing a connection between these forms of extraction, particularly of Black people in the U.S., um, I think is really um, quite important to, like, kind of ground us a little bit historically in thinking about, you know, the, the fact that these things are not new and that you don't actually need the shiny new technology um, in order to do something really terrible. And so, you know, in the case of the Tupac hologram, it is interesting as well, because it is not, um, you know, the technology itself is just sort of like a magic lantern trick, you know, it's not, um, it doesn't actually rely on particularly sophisticated technology. Um, but it was really about sort of, um, finding a way to continue to monetize Tupac's music and his image and his legacy, uh, and so thinking about that, that sort of posthumous exploitation, I think, is um, really important, even outside of kind of the, the particular technology through which it occurs. Thinking as well, like all of these examples, whether it's, you know, the George Carlin or Tupac or it's the professor at Concordia uh, or 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 it's just a, a, you know, a normal everyday person um, like it raises all these questions around like this digital estate planning, um, which you you have a whole chapter in the book kind of really exploring this whole industry around digital estate planning Um and in that, of course, is like, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you plan for people's digital assets? You know, some of it is very like just classic kind of, you know, uh, we, like family planning, wills, you know, you have a whole section talking about life insurance, which of course was, uh, very pleasing to me, uh, and, and my, and my project. Um, and also like another thing where I was like, 
I keep telling everyone insurance is everywhere. It underlies everything. You, you're reading a book about death and the internet, and there's a whole long section about life insurance. I was like, it was very uh, validating for for me. But um, I, I, I think as well, like the so there's like the kind of mundane aspect of digital estate planning, which is that like how do you pass on your like password to your email or your Facebook account and stuff to your family so that they can get into their, um, you know, access important documents or sentimental documents and pictures and images or whatever it might be or valuable things like your your Bitcoin wallet or, or something like that, right? Um, but there is also increasingly, it seems, um, there's a, a bit more of a, of a, of a, 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 an angle to this as well around like, how do you manage someone's IP after after they die? How do you manage um, not just like in our life um, managing all this data that you have produced, that you own, that you've created, that is about you in some way, but then after you die, when no one has IP rights after their death, right? Um, and so, how do you manage that, especially in a time when? Uh, that kind of data can be used in these really spectacle-filled ways of a hologram or deep fakes. But also, I think more more importantly and more valuably um, used uh, as like pristine forms of human-created data to train AI systems um, in a time when human-created clean data is becoming more and more valuable and and more and more rare um, when when everything is now being tainted by it's like after the nuclear after the first nuclear bomb explosion um, where you have like pre-atomic iron and post-atomic iron um, and and the, it, it, it's a uh, like there's actual real value to having iron um, that was produced and refined before the atomic bomb because it does not have the the same like these radiation particles in it and i feel the same thing is happening with um large language models where like you you have data created before large language models um that were not affected by generative ai then you have data afterwards where it it is or you're not sure if it's been tainted by by gen ai um so i i, I just wonder like what like what kind of how are you thinking about those kinds of issues in the context of this, you know, more than a decade of work you've been doing thinking about the, the like the afterlife of, of data and the internet? I feel like the whiplash has been so intense. So, uh, so you mentioned, you know, Bitcoin wallets. And of course, at some point uh, during the very long book writing process, it's like, ah, fuck, I have to talk about NFTs, don't I? <laughs> um, and like people I was interviewing were talking about them more, um, especially, you know, startup founders. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, you know, I kind of had to think about, all right, like we're talking about personal data and it actually is valuable even, at, you know, even before generative AI and sort of valuing data in that particular way. Um, there are all these other kind of valences to to uh, personal data and thinking about, you know, actually, you know, for a lot of these people who are investing in things that um, they do want to pass on, the question of like, how do you actually effectively um, pass on your Bitcoin wallet in a way that is secure? Um, how do you ensure that these things uh, can sort of 
um, outlive your your lifespan is something that more people were thinking about. And now, of course, we've had the pivot. And so it is interesting, too, because I was at Intel while, you know, Web3 was still going strong. And everybody was really thrilled about the metaverse. You know, I heard many presentations about the metaverse and how it would change everything. And, um, you know, having to, like, constantly try to reframe conversations that were really Mm. excited about the metaverse and sort of bring them back down to earth and be like, okay, but um, do you want to talk about, like, should we talk about Second Life for a minute? Like, do you want to talk about earlier histories of like uh, kind of like sexual assault in uh, in very early kind of virtual environments, you know? Um, and so, you know, there was always sort of a need to, um, to, to historicize, you know, everything that was sort of happening, but then the pivot to generative AI um, is also really interesting because I feel like the, the whole chatbot issue um in terms of this idea that you could train a chatbot to kind of encapsulate a personality and continue to uh, converse with loved ones after you die, and that somehow you would be able to kind of, in that way, maintain control over maybe the way that you were remembered through through this uh, chatbot technology, cat. Um, <laughs> um, yes, my, my cat's very active right now because she knows we're recording a podcast so she's got to jump oh, no. up on the, the 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 bookshelf and say hey 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 look at me <laughs> well you know the internet would be nothing without cats so that's right <laughs> but yeah the the whole thing um that i've been really uh kind of amused by is sort of watching the generative ai moment within tech and then um you know wondering kind of what what will actually stick like what are the things from this like current explosion that are going to be robust enough to kind of survive beyond like the immediate financial quarter um or three or whatever um and so thinking about uh, a company like replica which i think i at some point talk about in the book um I didn't f- focus particularly on sort of the chatbot companies in, in the book as much as um, I've written about them elsewhere, uh, in part because I didn't want to like, I don't know, th- I was trying to get beyond like the novelty thing, I think. Um, but like Replica began as a memorial to, um, a, you know, the woman founder. She basically uh, created just a, a simulation of her dead best friend. And then watched as a sort of Eliza effect thing happened and other people in their social network began conversing with the chatbot and, you know, really confiding in it and treating it like a friend or a companion or a therapist. Um, and so the idea behind replica was that it would be a companion for you, uh, you know, sort of trained on your communication data and so when I signed up for it in beta, I created my Tammy bot and then Tammy bot would send me gifts and, you know, uh, send me like, you know, uh, affirmations. And, you know, I was supposed to be training this thing to kind of be like me. And the idea is that it could kind of like fill in for me at a meeting if I didn't want to go to it, or eventually maybe it could like fill in for me after I died. I don't know. Question mark. Um, 
this thing that like started out as a memorial then turned into that. And then fast forward to, you know, like the explosion of OpenAI. And then, you know, the tech is suddenly better. Um, and Replica is sort of, you know, intended to be not just potentially a companion or like you, but also maybe your girlfriend um, or, you know, a sort of long-term romantic partner. And so the the relationships that users began to create kind of with this, with this chatbot looked a little bit different <laughs> uh, from what the, the original kind of prototype looked like. And so I was really interested in this because it was um, a case where a thing actually was built as a memorial, um, which is the opposite of most of the things that I've been studying, where they're kind of built for some kind of social networking purpose or commercial purpose, and then they become a memorial after the fact. This is actually something that began as a memorial to one person and then later became you know, uh, a set spot, which then the developer had to try to um, control uh, because there were all kinds of kind of unfortunate things happening um, with with uh, with replica, and so I I think just this idea that um, you know a lot of the the problems with generative AI are um, sort of beyond the the kind of consent and copyright issues or data governance issues even is just the fact that. Um, a lot of things were kind of put out on the market without any oversight. And I think that is the part that um, is the scariest to me, knowing that uh, in a lot of cases, this is just following the the general sort of tech trajectory where you quickly produce things and you ship them. Um, and unless there is regulation explicitly telling you that you have to do some kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, real investigation of the of the impacts of the thing that you're creating, then you're not you're not going to do that. Um, either because you don't want to, and it will take time and money, or also because you maybe can't because you uh, don't really have anybody on staff who can do that, especially if you're a tiny startup. Like, uh, you know, like many companies are when they when they launch products that do suddenly become really popular. Um, and so that I think the sort of general problem of um, the the use case traveling really, really quickly. So the thing is maybe, uh, you know, created for one particular kind of purpose and then very quickly it moves into something else. And uh, that can be hard to kind of predict. But. Um, you know, I think there are also like patterns that, you know, people who pay attention to this stuff over time can begin to notice and say, hey, maybe, uh, you know, if you're going to produce any kind of chatbot, like, let's not even think about, you know, what particular, um, you know, model you're using. But like, let's just talk about the fact that if people start viewing it as a therapist, there are going to be potentially, you know, really harmful things that come out of that. or if your chatbot starts saying, you know, if you try to replace people, right, for like an eating disorder um, awareness sort of hotline, um, if you're replacing your helpline workers with a chatbot and that that chat, chatbot ends up trying to actually um, encourage people to have eating disorders or in some way like 
actually do the opposite of what a human, um, you know, worker would do, then that is like a very clear harm and something that you can sort of almost see coming based on all of the many cases that we have of things like that happening. And so I think um, what I'm worried about right now is like even beyond the sort of data problem is just the fact that uh, there's really no oversight, even though we already kind of know generally that bad things are going to happen. Um, but there, there's really nothing in place to kind of uh, slow them down. And I think that, you know, you can't fix everything kind of through regulation alone. And compliance will always sort of lag behind <clears throat> whatever is happening in the policy world. But just the fact that you need to actually slow things down and let people think a little bit about what technology could actually do Um especially when applied to specific kind of use cases. I think that is really what we need right now. And we're really not quite there yet. I think that's also ends up being like one of the things that I kind of resent the most, right? Which is that, you know, we could sit here if there was a much more intentional approach with technology and design, all sorts of really interesting, complementive, um, devices techniques spaces that would enrich human life or make aspects of it easier but instead it's all just funneled as fast as possible down this like tunnel of you know dictated largely by the terms of like you know get them an agile little startup together grow in size get users put it to market get acquired go public um and pay little to no thought about an actual vision for what the technology could be unless that vision is monopoly um, and a series of steps to get people um, moded around a product. And we end up, I feel like, you know, um, just on a fundamental level, even if we were all capitalists here, you know, to like, to, to take that approach feels like also the most inefficient, the most wasteful, method right to take something that you know if we were if we were all techno optimists or if we were all techno solutionists it would seem to me like the the method that they all go about it is also the the worst possible one right also I mean, but i guess also since it's the one that has least resistance for them they go for it but it's the worst possible one because you don't you also end up over time it feels like also growing this discontent and dysfunction and inefficiency that undermines whatever initial value proposition you had to be in control of the direction of technological development. You know, like you're saying, it is really interesting. I'm, I'm like, do you, in, in your work, do you come across some of these techno solutionists and optimists who are interested in interventions and reforms in the name of preserving their um, hold on um, um, technological innovation or its role in uh, the larger economy? Or is it more so that they all have bought whatever line is kind of dominant at this point and don't really reflect on uh, the direction uh, that things are going under their stewardship? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question because I feel like that the reform versus, you know, revolution thing, uh, you know, it really does play out in a very critical way in tech. And actually, I have to say, like, in the sustainability in tech world is where you can really see this because it does tend to attract people who are passionate about something who may really come from more of an activist background. And so you do get people who kind of view maybe working on a particular kind of tech as like a way into changing the larger social world uh, and the larger structures around it eventually, right? Like it is an incrementalist kind of kind of approach. Um, but then there are people who definitely kind of just sort of um, all they can see is the technology itself. And it's like, if we have enough of the right kind of data, if we make it transparent, if we know what we're measuring is the accurate thing, um, if we do that enough, uh, it will change the fundamental problem and we will have, you know, we will have a better future because, you know, we will achieve net zero or whatever it is that they're going after. Um, and so I, I feel like you do get people who kind of are approaching the problem from different perspectives. And then it is sort of a question of do people see it as a problem that they're solving in just their little corner? Like, are they thinking about it just through the lens of their particular company or their team or the product that they're working on? Or are they thinking about it in a sort of larger collective sense? Like, are they talking to people from other companies? Are they talking to people who aren't at a tech company? <laughs> like, are they, are they talking to people outside of tech? Um, and, you know, experts in, say, climate issues who are not part of their immediate world. Um, and in some cases, they are. But, uh, but I, I do think, um, you know, what ends up happening is that people kind of have their, their pet projects that they're working on. And some people are able to, through charisma or through, you know, maybe uh, the presentation of a particular idea, maybe they're really good at PowerPoint, um, <laughs> they're able to, to get some degree of buy-in from, from management, from C-suite, because that's the, that is really the fundamental issue is that, you know, even if you do have people who are trying to do the right thing and they're kind of finding their way and building networks within tech and they're, you know, maybe trying to change the way that tech is actually produced and, um, you know, uh, there's something there and you can feel like slightly hopeful, then it's like, these people are going to be, <laughs> these people are going to be laid off probably, um, if they don't come up with, you know, an idea that will kind of immediately lead to the company making money. And so that, that bottom line issue is just so kind of glaring. And um, certainly, and I'm, I'm sure that, you know, if you all talk to, to Mel Gregg uh, soon, that she will have a lot to say about uh, her experiences kind of navigating that um that fundamental disconnect in, in the tech industry between, you know, sustainability as something that is sort of going to clearly not, <laughs> not make people money. Um, and so trying to build a business case for why uh, a company should care about the environment or why they should do less damage um, is actually not that easy. Uh, so it, it kind of ends up coming down to marketing. It's sort of like, Hey, people will think you're not that evil if you, 
do, you know, these slight tweaks to your business model or think more about, you know, uh, forms of energy efficiency or, you know, circularity. Um, but I think, you know, the fundamental problem is that, um, if you're talking about sort of endless growth, um, it, it just is going to immediately clash with, with any of the, the conversations that have to happen around what, um, what sustainable tech would actually look like. That, that's a good teaser for next week's episode uh, that li- listeners can stay tuned for. Um, but I, I do also kind of pulling it back to a lot of this stuff as well. I mean, the kind of techno solutionism um, and the, that we see in this, in this area around, you know, death and afterlife and immortality, um, which is also very much something that you focus on a lot in the book, but also in a new baffler piece called Memento More um, on this kind of like, you know, this, this quest for immortality, but it looks in, it looks in very different ways, depending on, on who you are and, and, and your, your class and your position in the, uh, in the whole political economy of, of technology. Um, but you know, and also going to Ed's point as well around like, you know, and, 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 you know, what both of you were really saying around the, like the constraints to thinking and the assumptions that are kind of taken for granted when you're thinking about like, what, what is a good innovation? And then you kind of work from these assumptions that like, okay, a good innovation is one that takes like data and solves the problem using data. So with that assumption, never question it, you take that as the starting point, what can we build, right? Um, or as we often talk about, and I, I, I just always think about the meme because it is like constantly proven to be so accurate that like, you know, um, there's all these sci-fi books and stories and movies and TV shows that are like about not building the torment nexus. And, and then you have a bunch of uh, techies and, who are like, Congratulations, everyone. I built the Torment Nexus. Uh, we're, we're very happy to announce that the Torment Nexus is real. And, and, we, and we were inspired by all these books and movies about the Torment Nexus. Uh, and I, I think the same thing is really um, happens here with like, you know, when we think about the kind of the solving death, right? And, and for, you know, I think we'll definitely, we will get to the kind of the transhumanists, the immortalists who don't, who actually don't want to die, right? They want to solve death by like actually just not dying. But for everyone else, for the plebs, they've also figured out ways to solve death, which is that you die, uh, but, but we bring you back to life. It's a, it's digital resurrection. Um, and, and like, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's cliche and hack, um, at this point, but there literally was 10 years ago, a black mirror episode called be right back about the, about like, don't bring dead people back to life as AIs. Um, because it's like, uh, philosophically and, um, and, and, uh, sentimentally monstrous, like a monstrosity, not to mention all the other weird and bizarre and terrible things that can come out of doing that. Uh, and, and yet, um, 
there are now like mini services, uh, not just the kind of bespoke things like Replica, um, but also like services that are plugins for Alexa, right? Amazon Alexa um, that promise to provide you with a kind of AI resurrection of uh, of a loved one. Um, or I guess it doesn't have to be a loved one. It's just anyone that you have enough data about. You can you can you can resurrect. Uh, I, could you? Maybe as a way to to talk about some of the the, the real sickos in this who don't want to die, um, but like, could, could you talk a little bit more about like what's the kind of the the mindset here? What's the approach? Um, what are they act like? What are they trying to do with these kinds of forms of digital resurrection? Um, beyond, I mean, to me, what seems to just be like extremely cynical ploys to like market technologies by being like, you know, this is one of the one of the key ways every marketer knows um, to to get people to change their purchasing habits is in like big crisis filled moments of life. You, you had a new child, you moved houses um, or jobs or someone that you love has recently died. And those are ways to really get in there and take advantage of people when they're, when they're, um, when they're at their weakest. And so, but I'm sure that's part of it, but what, what do you think is going on with this kind of digital resurrection? Yeah. And yeah, as you, as you point out, I mean, you know, uh, the funeral industry upselling grieving family members on like the more expensive coffin, you know, that sort of thing, um, that that's, you know, sort of par for the course doesn't require technology, uh, yada, yada, yada. But, um, I think, um, you know, with the sort of digital resurrection thing, I mean, to some extent, yeah, it is sort of the gimmicky, you know, spectacular sort of thing. So especially with a celebrity, um, there are also really kind of uh, creepy, deep fake videos that appear. Um, so TikTok recently had a bunch of uh, deep fake versions of some of the people who died uh, in the Hamas attack. So very obviously also being politicized. Um, and so things that carry a very heavy sort of political connotation. Um, there have also been cases of children who were murdered in really horrific ways, sort of um, retelling how they were killed. So it actually is almost like a, um, like a really creepy sort of fetish. Um, and so I think there are, uses for this technology that are just like outright really unsettling um, in a variety of different ways, particularly because these particular resurrections are done by random people on the internet who have no relationship to the dead person. And so if we're thinking about, you know, the privacy rights of the dead or anything around consent and, you know, violation of consent, I think, you know, these are pretty clear, clear cut in that way. This does make me think when 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 I when I finally get time to writing up a will, I'm gonna have to put a clause in there which says, "Don't bring me back to life. Leave me dead. Don't don't make a deep fake. Don't make an AI model on me. Just let me be." And I, you know, so some of the um, state planning lawyers that I I talked to for the book, uh, including Megan Yip, have repeatedly been saying, you know, we need like a don't bot me clause, like basically, yeah, uh, people will have to kind of preemptively state that they don't want to be used in that way. 
Um, although, how do you actually enforce that? I don't know. Because um, <laughs> part of the problem is, you know, uh, it can be really hard to know um, if deep fakes like this are in circulation or not. It may be something that is actually quite hard to keep track of, um, especially if you're dead. You know, you're not going to be uh, aware. Um, and but I think the other the other side of it maybe, and this is coming from more of like the you know the ethnographic um, side, particularly talking to people who really do um, maintain a close relationship with the various digital you know remains of their of their dead loved ones. So I, I do think there are people who revive uh you know dead loved ones through through a chatbot or some other kind of simulation in order to um deal with grief and you know it can become a form of memorialization and then the question is you know who should have the authority to do that um and as you know as with death always you know there are going to be disagreements over how how somebody should be remembered. They're going to be, you know, maybe people fighting over actual, uh, you know, monetary uh, assets or the house or something. But um, you may also have really big differences of opinion and how somebody should re- be remembered and if somebody should be resurrected uh, in this way. And so um, that that is the piece of it that I find you know, more interesting just because it's a little bit more, um, more likely, I think for, for most people that, you know, um, and it's more similar to, you know, the question over memorialization in general, clearly it's a little bit different if, uh, it's an interactive version of you. Uh, but there's some, there's some aspects of even like a Facebook profile that, you know, uh, can be similarly uncanny uh, that may have other sorts of um, significance for people who who are grieving, and so um, yeah, it it is interesting because I mean some people do clearly form pretty close bonds with with uh, you know digital resurrections as well, and so. I think trying to understand how this is sort of related to um, not just sort of larger psychological uh, issues and, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, just the psychology of mourning and grief and uh, sort of all of the stages of of those things, but also uh, sort of this larger kind of social problem of, you know, how do we keep the dead around us? Like, how do we maintain our connections with the dead? Um, And how do we also kind of grapple with the reality of mortality? Like, how do we, how do we deal with the fact that everything will eventually end? My first love was really anthropology. And I think uh, I came to this, this project, kind of thinking about the classic ethnographies of, you know, of ye old days and the idea that, you know, mortuary ritual, thinking about how people treat the dead um, and how they kind of prepare them for the afterlife, how much that is really a, a fundamental part of understanding uh, how a society or a culture works. And so um, I, I spent some time going to events like the Deaf Salon, 
um, and other things kind of held by the order of the good death. And all of these people who, particularly in kind of the, I don't know, I guess this would have been like uh, 2008, 2009, uh, in around that era, um, were trying to position death acceptance as kind of a radical act and very much positioning themselves against the kind of transhumanist mind uploading, you know, we're going to, we're going to cure death. Um, and so the whole idea of like death positivity and embracing decay, um, I was really interested in these movements, particularly because they also did rely on a kind of, uh, uh, kind of platformed connectivity. So thinking about like, uh, Caitlin Dowdy from, uh, the Order of the Good Death, she really, you know, she had a very popular YouTube series and that was how she was able to kind of um, spread the word about, uh, you know, how it's good to, to, good to embrace death. And really viewing it as an ethical position was something that I thought was really interesting too. So, um, you know, if you kind of like force people in Silicon Valley to, to actually think about decay and their own mortality and the fact that they can't escape it, um, maybe that'll, you know, make them better people or something. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, w- I was struck by that logic, even though, I don't know, I don't know if there's any hope <laughs> for any of us at this point, to be honest, but yeah. Uh, em- embracing death. That sounds like the recourse for people who won't, who, who don't have the opportunity to live forever. You know, it's a, uh, <laughs> you don't have to embrace death if you can live forever. Well, but before we get to the to the immortalists, I did want to make a point where I think there's a real there's a really interesting kind of like tension here um, that mm-hmm. you uh, pull out in the book around the fact that like you know the internet is also not forever, right? Contrary to what we always were told that if you post something on the internet, it's there forever. That's that's not true. I mean, the internet is subject to um, all kinds of entropy, to death and decay constantly. Um, I mean, you start the book with um, kind of going to the uh, the internet archives, right? Seeing the internet archive servers that are trying to kind of maintain these the, the, the past um, phases of, of the internet or the past stages of the uh, life stages of the internet, if you will but like you know things like link link decay link death um like these things are constant you know servers are constantly getting turned off because a company goes out of business or they pivot or they just decide uh it's not a a profitable budget line anymore to keep those servers running and so devices get bricked um data gets deleted uh and and you know sometimes that data is like you know all of your family photos that were on google photo or something like that right or it's uh it's it's a you know a memorial page on facebook to a loved one um like things that uh, there's a very interesting aspect to this where like as as digital technology and death become so deeply intertwined there's also this uh, this fact that like most digital technologies are controlled and maintained by um corporations who make decisions about when and how they want to keep those things running keep those servers alive if you will um and and they do so in like 
really quite rapid and compressed time scales as well compared to what we think of. I mean, this comes out when you were talking about like life insurance and the whole point of like the life insurance industry is to give you this sense of stability and longevity. That prudential has been here for hundreds of years and it will be here for hundreds of years after the fact, which means you're safe and secure in our hands, right? Like you're, we're underwriting a life and you have to know that like we're still going to be a, a a company that is like honoring that policy um 50 60 years in the future right um or beyond uh but like the 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 lifespan of like what's considered you know uh, um like a long like a uh, <laughs> what's considered a like technology company with longevity is one that's been around for like 20 years, right? Or maybe like 25 years since like the 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 late 90s, you know, you're like, oh, these are the the gray beard giants um, of the of the digital platforms. That's not a very long time <laughs> at all. And most companies don't exist anywhere near as long as that in, in the, the tech sector. Um, so there's a there's a real kind of aspect here as well about like how do you fight against or just deal with um, the the kind of inherent death and decay of the internet as a, as a form of like uh, these unstable data infrastructures and I and that that comes through in some really fascinating ways in your book and and before we get on to the uh, the the spectacle of the immortalist and transhumanist I think it would I would actually love to hear you talk a little bit more about that kind of that that entropic infrastructural kind of uh, point. Yeah, yeah. It it is interesting too because I feel like the, you know, the death happens at different rates. So, um, you know, a few of the a few of the companies particularly within the context of digital estate planning, you know, these are companies that their their entire marketing was sort of around the idea that they would preserve your data forever, that they would keep your data safe. Um, and then many of them didn't survive for very long at all. Many of them went under and disappeared after, you know, a year, maybe two. And so there, there was obviously no way that companies like that were going to be able to broker the sort of exchange of data across generations, um, but then, you know, even at the sort of larger platform level, um, you know, the fact that even with things that people end up kind of beginning to take for granted, there are always going to be features that disappear, things that change. And so, you know, I kind of opened the book talking um, to Paul Lindner, who also, in addition to kind of talking about uh, trying to find pieces of his kind of online life together with his wife who died of cancer, he also was on the team that, you know, built Google+. Plus. Um, and thinking about um, all of the, you know, kind of different forms of social network and the different um, features within particular platforms that have died prematurely, um, and so I think um, one of the one of the kind of ways that I tried to track. Um, a lot of these companies or a lot of these features, because even trying to kind of imagine what the user experience of something like Facebook circa 2005 was like, trying to go back um, 
and even with some of the kind of images from the, the internet archive, it can be difficult to actually kind of reconstitute what it really felt like to inhabit a particular um, point in, in web history. And so um, I think, you know, screenshots become this like kind of weird and imperfect way of trying to create your own archive. Um, also, just so that you don't like feel like you're losing your mind because they're like, I'm pretty sure that this, you know, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that that, the, that particular website used to, you know, market itself this way and now it's changed. Um, or, you know, just trying to remember things like um, the fact that, you know, in the early days of Facebook, um, it was normal for people to kind of delete their walls after a while. It was this idea that um, your wall was getting too long. There were too many messages on it and you should just start over again, like an etch a sketch, like just like shake it. Um, and, you know, now I think people would find that concept very odd. Like, you know, there was no reason for people to have to do that. That was just sort of a social norm. So I think it can be really tricky when you're trying to remember um, even in a relatively short amount of time, how many things are kind of shifting constantly um, underneath you when you're trying to like grasp at this thing, which is why I think in general, the idea of kind of um, a perfect form of preservation is impossible, you know, <laughs> like, um, and that is maybe okay, but um, but just sort of, it, it does really fly in the face of the, the notion of a, a form of like, um, perfected data capture that could lead to something like a kind of, um, you know, simulation of a person uh, that can be maintained in perpetuity. Because it's just like, um, how, how would you know, like, how would you keep that thing going? It will continue to shift and something will break down. And, you know, uh, it will continue to just sort of uh, slip through your fingers over time. And so uh, that that became sort of the, the fundamental um, impetus for, for kind of the hook of the book. Like it, you know, it's something that I, I kind of observed uh, happening fairly early on in my dissertation research. And then it was just sort of the thing that I held on to, like kind of watching things fall apart either very quickly or very slowly. And like, it is the long game in that way. It's like, aha, <laughs> got you, <laughs> got you platform. Like you thought you were going to, you know, be around forever. Now you're dead basically <laughs> because, you know, because a billionaire killed you, you know? Um, but, you know, I think um, just being able to kind of watch those changes over time is uh, incredibly useful in terms of trying to think about what it would actually mean to try to, and I, I'm sorry, my dog is whining. Uh, kind of fine. Uh, preserve everything in the very long term. <laughs> we, we, it's, we always love it when pets have, uh, have something to say as well in the, in, on the podcast. But I, I mean, I think to, yeah, to that. So maybe let's quickly, because uh, they, they get, <laughs> they get entirely too much spotlight than, than they deserve, but we should at least touch on the fact that like another al element of, of all of this is a, a um, is is an is another kind of you know small but powerful 
sect of Silicon Valley, which also is really dedicated to um, denying the lessons of other types of stories, which are always about how immortal life is actually a curse, not a blessing, right? Living for um, like forever or having a, or even just having extremely extended longevity uh, always results in um, just wanting to die, you know, <laughs> wanting to have that sweet release. Um, and yet the, 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 the lesson drawn from these stories for a lot of the transhumanist in Silicon Valley, but also importantly, you know, you travel to uh, Provo, Utah, um, where there is a very uh, strong kind of sect of Mormon transhumanism um, going on there as well. Uh, but like the the you know the these transhumanists have drawn the opposite conclusion from all these stories about the curse of longevity to say no, actually I could do it the right way. Um, actually, it would be a blessing for me to to live forever. Um, because I, I I deserve it and I and I want it. Um, so maybe talk talk about some of that. And um, I will say as well that you um, in the book you were you did you know, you reports from um, uh, like this invite only exclusive workshop or seminar kind of event that you went to with a bunch of you know transhumanist. Uh, it was organized by um, somebody from my my PhD alma mater at ASU, <laughs> which I found to be very um, funny, but also also very gratifying because I found <laughs> I won't get into it uh, <laughs> at all. Um, I will I will actually veer <laughs> away from from where I was going there to say that uh, I I did uh, to just to say I personally enjoyed that on many levels. I'm um, the the kind of of uh, this the skewering there but but yeah so you got you also you got up close and personal with some of these uh transhumanist immortalist um at, at various ways who are both kind of uh you know secular in a sense that technology is their theology um but also um quite religious in the sense of like no technology is going to bring them closer to um to god so um and the the those those two people don't exist in different areas they exist in the same venn diagram yeah i mean i think you know the the sort of religious elements of transhumanism are really fascinating, particularly because, I mean, even with the people who imagine themselves to be extremely rational um, and who would maybe say that they are secular or atheist, they, there are these like very clear, uh, you know, religious, spiritual, transcendent elements of their belief system. And, uh, and I know that you all have discussed this on previous episodes, so we don't have to get too far into the sort of like test real, um, you know, ideologies, uh, behind all of the, the Silicon Valley kind of Im immortalism. Um, but what I, what I really enjoyed actually about the sort of Mormon transhumanist approach to transhumanism is that, um, it was at least built on relations and on a sort of embodied form of afterlife. And so, you know, part of what I always found so weird about kind of uh, the idea that you could preserve your data kind of in isolation and that it was just like your data um, is that obviously that 
you know, data is always sort of relationally produced and maintained. And the idea that like you can kind of isolate your data from um, everyone around you is a little bit bizarre. And then the fact that you would be able to kind of like um, somehow simulate your own personality uh, by itself <laughs> and that it would just sort of like keep going. Um, and uh, it, it just is a very, you know, it's like this very individualist uh, way of even thinking about what what the subject is or what consciousness is or what what an afterlife should be. Um, and so with the, the sort of Mormon transhumanist group, um, you know, they are people who are, you know, they are members of, you know, uh, the LDS church. They, they view themselves as still being Mormon, but um, they also do believe that attempting to, you know, kind of extend their lives and achieve a, a certain degree of immortality through technology is actually what it means to be a good Mormon. So they look at kind of the, the foundations of Mormon cosmology um, where, you know, there's a kind of uh, call to become godlike. And so the idea is basically you could, should use technology to perfect yourself and become more godlike. Um, and that that really means that you should be trying to be immortal through technology. Um, and so, uh, I had some really interesting, I'm, I'm, I'm chalking that up <laughs> for another genre of stories that have nothing but, uh, you know, lessons to learn about the, the follies of trying to become God. -like. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep. laughs> totally, totally. Um, and yeah, so I think, you know, um, I, I kept seeing kind of all of these weird moments of overlap between, you know, the the group and uh, that you mentioned that was led by somebody from uh, ASU um, and, uh, you know, a bunch of folks from Stanford, of course, uh, at the Computer History Museum. And that that particular group, they they were interested in kind of the spiritual aspects of transhumanism. But they were also much more focused on like product. Um, they were kind of like um, thinking about, you know, how how do you kind of take this notion of uh, digital immortality and turn it into something that can be, you know, <laughs> like a real product that people will use and will make us more money. Um, and, you know, and there were a lot of connections, of course, to Stuart Brand from the whole Earth Catalog and sort of that entire group of people who exhibit both, you know, kind of hippie, new communalist uh, tendencies and a kind of, uh, you know, techno-optimism, if not techno-utopianism, and who kind of, um, you know, are looking for ways to uh, play God in a variety of different ways, you know, like resurrecting extinct species and what have you. Um, but without necessarily explicitly tying it to a religious practice. Um, but then with the Mormon transhumanists, you know, they, they also were very much in conversation with the group of kind of uh, Silicon Valley based people who maybe wouldn't say that they are transhumanists, you know, they're not necessarily um, followers of Ray Kurzweil, they're not thinking that they're going to upload their consciousness. But they're kind of hedging their bets. Like it, it kind of felt like everybody was sort of like, well, you know what? I'm a billionaire. Like I have a pretty good life. Um, no, I, 
I'm, I'm in good shape. You know, I, I like my life. I would like to preserve it. And maybe if like, if Kurt Swell is onto something, if like these other guys over here who have another idea about, you know, digital immortality, like let's hear everyone out, you know, and kind of like figure out, um, what the best long-term bet is. And that, that was sort of the vibe I would say overall. Um, and with, uh, you know, with the Mormon transhumanists, it was interesting though, because they were a little bit different, like demographically, um, from a lot of the, the folks that I was encountering kind of in the more, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, adjacent circles and that <clears throat> they were often people who kind of didn't quite fit in with mainstream, uh, Mormonism largely because they were queer, um, and, you know, a lot of women as well, and people who just, like, didn't quite feel like mainstream, maybe conservative Mormonism worked for them. And so there was something appealing about a transhumanist version of the religion that made it a little bit more open. Like, um, you know, your, your afterlife can look a little bit different from what uh, sort of the the mundane or kind of accepted cosmology would say um, that maybe it can be a little bit queerer. Um, maybe it could be a little bit more uh, feminist in nature. And so there was like a playing with kind of, uh, you know, Mormon belief system in order to create like a, a kind of imagined um, transhumanist future that, that was a little bit more like Donna Haraway than, um, than Ray Kurzweil, which was also really interesting. It was sort of um, a more expansive notion even of what, you know, a, a sort of uh, techno-utopian future would look like. And it was much more based on kind of um, attachment to, to the earth and to kind of um, ecosystems and, you know, uh, habitats that actually exist rather than sort of about um, escapism. And so the whole idea of like exit always being <laughs> a, a big focus for, for people in these <laughs> Silicon Valley circles. Um, and of course, part of the, you know, AGI fantasy of kind of like becoming digital to go out to other planets. And so there's this um, weird way in which like the Mormon, the Mormon transhumanist uh, approach to thinking about immortality. I was sort of like, all right, <laughs> you know, um, I can kind of, I, you know, I, I see where you're coming from. You know, I, I can kind of, I, I feel like I, I didn't, um, my critique was not as uh, heavy handed, I guess, as it was with some of the others. I mean, also so much of it too is like, it doesn't require or demand this heavy handed critique because it really is just like, I think to most, to the vast majority of people, it is on its face uh, absurd, right? This idea of like, and I like the the kind of the, you evoke exit there. And I think that's right. There's like, it's really impossible to understand 
like Silicon Valley without understanding at least in part how much a like politics of exit um, underlies so much of that. And it just depends on what are you trying to exit, right? Is it like the kind of ex politics of exit that we talked about um, on the show when we had like Quinn Slobodian on, right? And it's about this exit of like the crack up capitalism, finding these like zones of like freedom and liberty and, and free marketing and, and stuff. And that, that kind of exit, um, you know, or, or the exit of, you know, exiting from, from parts of society or parts of life that you don't like, or you, you don't want to have anything to do with, um, or in this case, it's the exiting from death, right? Just, uh, an exit from the, the, the inevitable end, um, that comes for us all and say, actually not me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to exit, um, that, that inevitability, um, and escape it. Like it always seems like there is this kind of this politics of exit that, that, that drives so much of, of what we see going on and kind of threads a lot of this together. The exit thing is really important and it, it does really kind of run across all of this. And then I think the other, the other aspect that I thought was so interesting is that, um, uh, you know, there's a sort of issue with uh, not actually thinking about who will be there to maintain this supposed form of immortality, like, and that that's another sort of recurring theme, I think, in the book is like, the thing that the the transhumanist plans and is so meticulous about laying out. Um, yeah, actually, like, he didn't bother to, you know, build a manual or like, leave any real instructions behind. And so everything is just sort of built around one person's preferences and so well optimized that there's no intention of kind of passing on knowledge or the, the understanding of how systems work to anyone else. And then, you know, the idea that all of these things that are kind of kept running will eventually also break down. So I think, you know, with all of this sort of like fantasy about uploading one's consciousness into the cloud, like who, who will be maintaining all of the data centers? Like what, what is that? <laughs> you know, you know, thinking about sort of the the problem of uh, you know with living <laughs> living in the age that we do um, with climate change going the way it is going. It is also just um, really baffling to me that anybody could kind of think about um, any form of immortality or even like a, a radical life extension. Like I don't know why anybody would want to do that just thinking about what uh, the planet will probably look like in another like 20 or 30 years, let alone like another like 100 years. Um, and so I, it just seems like this incredibly naive uh, proposition. And, and I guess that's sort of the problem with people who are maybe in some cases so wealthy that they don't have to really think about um think about sort of the problems that are that are outside of their immediate bubble. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, you know, I think uh, thinking about sort of the, the fantasy of um, digital immortality in whatever form that takes, you know, whether through like AGI or whatever um, that it becomes uh, that it is really just another different kind of exit, you know, um, 
but that fundamentally it'll all kind of um, end up in the same place, which is that, you know, you still need other people <laughs> to do the work of like keeping the server running. You still need other people to, you know, uh, prevent your uh, chatbot software from <laughs> becoming obsolete and, uh, you know, just bugging out, you know? So it's just like, you're always going to need other people around to do that stuff. And uh, I, I think that that sort of gets at that other fantasy of just like being able to do it all on your own. You don't need anyone else and you can just leave. Um, but even leaving, you know, you're not actually really leaving. You're still dependent on all of these other things. I think that's a that's a really nice way to wrap things up and and put a bow on that. Uh, I, I mean, I think it really just hits on so many of the key themes here, which is that like you know ultimately a a, a good death uh, is part of uh, part of that is the all the social relations that make a death good, right? Um, that that have that lead to having some some form of a of a good death, both uh, you know before it happens, when it happens, and then after it happens, and and the idea that you can kind of you know the 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 libertarian ideal of exiting um from those social relations never is actually an exit it is just instead a kind of um ignoring them remaining blissfully ignorant of them um overriding them you know whatever it might be um ultimately making uh, your solutions, somebody else's problem, right? And I think that's, I mean, that's technological solutionism in a nutshell, but I think it really is also um, underlies a lot of what you're talking about here. And what we, what we've just been talking about is that like, it's, you know, who's going to maintain this? Who's going to care for these things? Who's going to keep them running? Who's going to, you know, execute your, your will or your, your, your orders or whatever it might be. Um, ultimately, if you're in a position of enough power, um, and narcissism, you can say, that's not my problem, right? My solution is somebody else's problem. Um, and I, and I think, we, we spent so much time talking about the book, which is why we brought you on. But I do want to actually give you a, a, a little bit of just a, you know, a time to give a quick pitch, because I think that's actually a really nice transition to talking about the kind of stuff that you're doing at the AIM Lab at Data and Society, which is about like really understanding like what are the immediacy um, of, of, these, of the impacts of these technologies, not putting it off um, until some uncertain future of like existential risk or whatever, um, not ignoring the immediacy, kind of, you know, kicking the can down the road in terms of like, oh, well, climate change is like somebody else's problem in a, a, a couple hundred years or whatever. It's like, no, it's like, it's now. Uh, and so I, 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 I want to throw it over to you real quick. Can you just give, give, people a little bit of like the pitch about like, what are you doing at um, the algorithmic impacts methods lab at data and society? Um, and I know you've just put out um, a really nice um, article on medium 
through the data and society's uh, blog, just kind of outlining as well, um, work that you've been doing work that you want to do. Um, so I would love for you to, to just kind of, uh, we can wrap things up with a, a, a bit of a pitch of, of what, what's, what's going on with the aim lab at data and society. Yeah. Happy to talk about that. So, I mean, um, so I started the job in July and so much of kind of figuring out how to actually measure algorithmic impacts um, has to do with figuring out um, what kind of access you have to systems and at what point in the development uh, of the technology do you actually get in uh, and like, when do you get your hands on a thing or when can you actually be in the room? Um, and who will let you in the room? Uh, and so, um, you know, one of our, one of our partners is the city government and that has actually been really interesting because, um, they have a very well-developed digital privacy office and, they're really bringing us in to help us uh, to help them um, figure out the best way of kind of interacting with different community members about this technology that they're not implementing yet. They're just sort of feeling it out. Um, and so in that case, we're able to kind of, you know, get in and have conversations with different people within city government and get to know how different departments are kind of uh, relating with each other and understanding also which kind of core um, grassroots community groups are kind of already in conversation with the city and uh, what groups they really would like to be in more conversation with. And so, you know, hearing from people from, uh, you know, like say a Viet Vietnamese American communities uh, organization about, you know, their concerns about a particular technology or uh, actually what they would prefer the city to do or um, what they would actually um, like the technology to do. Like, what are the problems that they actually care about? And so what you end up kind of seeing after you kind of have enough conversations with people across different sectors. So we've also you know, um, been partnering with the Workers Algorithm Observatory, which is, uh, you know, doing much more of a kind of adversarial um, worker-led audit of algorithmic wage discrimination against rideshare drivers. And so that, you know, um, that's a very different kind of project. But I think, you know, as you start to kind of gather um, sort of a, a feeling for how to actually think about algorithmic harms in a lot of different kinds of places and talking to a lot of different kinds of communities or stakeholders, you, you get a, a sense for how, you know, so many of the problems that we're talking about, you know, really <clears throat> in many cases have little to do with the, the technology itself. So um, a lot of the, the forms of AI that can actually be harmful are not necessarily generative AI, right? Like that's the thing that everybody is really focused on right now, especially within the sort of regulatory space. But, you know, there are many forms of like boring old, <laughs> you know, algorithmic discrimination um, that have been happening and that do things like prevent people from, you know, getting access to housing or uh, get it, you know, prevent people from getting hired or, you know, can prevent people from getting food stamps or like whatever. And so 
I think um, what's been really interesting is sort of thinking about what are the actual social problems that are happening? Um, in what ways are they related to a particular algorithmic system? Or in what, in, you know, in what way does the kind of uh, the conversation about AI open up a way to talk about these other problems that actually are really important? Um, and so I think the problem would be if we really just sort of went forward with the notion that if we tweak the algorithm or we put some things in place to like prevent bias or we, you know, check some boxes that then we're done, you know, that (laughs) we've made this algorithm less racist. Therefore, like we're fine, you know, we're done with our job. Um, And I think that would be the worst kind of outcome of something like, you know, an algorithmic impact assessment mandate where, you know, every company for every product, they're like ticking some boxes and being like, yeah, we checked and, you know, uh, this algorithm appears to not be too racist. So I think we're fine. Let's ship it. Um, and so I think, you know, if we can use this as a way to like really talk about um, that, that sort of more complicated relationship between, you know, different kinds of power structures and who is making decisions and why and relationships between, you know, uh, city governments and particular vendors or, you know, relationships uh, between, you know, tech companies and uh, their kind of imagined users versus maybe communities that they're impacting through e-waste. Like, how do we kind of begin to talk about these issues Um in a much more holistic way, in a way that considers the entire supply chain of AI and not just focused on kind of like tweaking the algorithm uh, or thinking about the sort of, um, you know, <clears throat> you know, with generative AI sort of thinking about um, red teaming or something being like the end, like that's the solution. Like we, you know, as long as we figured out, you know, some guardrails essentially, and we know the guardrails are there, that's enough. Um, so it's just a very different way of thinking about safety um, because it's like, you know, rather than starting from the the sort of um, the floating anxiety around like, you know, AI getting access to the newts or something, um, it starts off with like a much more boring uh, version of algorithmic harm, um, which is the thing that is actually happening now and that is actually going to affect people in reality and not just like in a thought experiment. I love it. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. The, the, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tamara, for coming on. Thanks for, for talking to us about your new book, Death Glitch, How Technological Solutionism Fails Us in This Life and Beyond, uh, and giving us a bit of an overview of what you're doing at the AIM Lab. I mean, we uh, we easily um, could have you on to talk only about that, um, but that that that'll 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 be next time that'll have to be next time um otherwise we've got a three-hour podcaster on our hands <laughs> so tamara thank you so much for coming on we'll have links to your book um to your recent baffler article um to your uh twitter um and and all of that in the episode description so people should check all of that out um and it was a it was a real joy to have you on and a real joy to check yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for answering my <laughs> my email. Um, and yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been very delightful. 
So I hope you like Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Of course. Uh, and then, yes, and everybody can also find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Uh, and so until next time, later. Yo, 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 yo,